Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Charles Hain. We're all here. It's June 29th, 2017. And on this week's show, the fate of Vimeo's subscription plan, why you might never see Albert Maisel's final film, the fallout from Lucasfilm's firing of young directing team Lord and Miller, in Ask No Film School, how to choose a color grading software, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, and indie film releases. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films, starting with... The fact that cable is dying! Breaking news, breaking news. (laughs) Really, what else is new? But according to a recently published forecast that will surprise absolutely no one, the pay TV industry will lose 10.8 million subscribers by 2021, according to the research firm Kagan, which is part of the S&P Global Market Intelligence. But just because we're getting happy with our cord cutters, and I don't know about you, but my cord cutters are massive, that doesn't mean that on-demand video is making up the lost ground. Just two days ago, Vimeo announced that it would kill its planned on-demand video subscription service, which the company was positioning as a veritable Netflix for indie filmmakers. Last year, Vimeo announced that it would invest tens of millions of dollars in an SVOD, or subscription video on-demand service, that would aim to compete with, yes, Netflix, but also Hulu and Amazon, and the recently launched YouTube Red. Vimeo planned for a 2018 rollout and seemed pretty convinced its subscribers were ready to pay for exclusive original content in what the industry insiders call OTT, or over-the-top content, market. And to be fair, this assumption was not without precedent. Vimeo's original web series High Maintenance amassed more than 6 million paying viewers as of 2015, after which the company sold the show to HBO. Vimeo also saw success with its high-profile series Darby Forever and The Outs. But as my good friend and former colleague Chris O'Fault points out over at IndieWire, Vimeo's existing 1 million paying subscribers can't compete with Netflix's numbers, which are in the hundreds of millions. Plus, Netflix boasts a $6 billion annual budget for original content. And it seems Vimeo was simply late to the game. Joey Levin, the interim CEO of Vimeo, said in a statement, quote, This was a difficult decision. The idea of pursuing an SVOD service for Vimeo has always been intriguing, and I would have loved to see the incredibly talented Alana Mayo's programming vision realized here at Vimeo. But the opportunity for Vimeo to empower creators is too large and too important for us to attack with anything other than absolute focus and clarity. It's unclear what exactly Levin has in store for a more streamlined ability to empower creators, but Vimeo has managed to stay true to its mission statement. The ad-free company pays video creators 90% of gross revenue, while YouTube only pays creators 55% and places ads on nearly every video. This is because most of Vimeo's revenue comes from Vimeo Plus, its monthly video hosting service, which most of you probably use. If you studied economics at any point in your life, you might know about something called the sunk cost fallacy. A sunk cost is a cost that's already been incurred and can't be recovered. So in other words, it's something you've already invested plenty of resources in. And as psychology demonstrates, once people invest resources, they cease to act rationally. So the more you invest in something, the harder it becomes to abandon it. And this is where I actually have to applaud Vimeo. For whatever undisclosed reasons, the company at some point realized that its subscription service couldn't compete. So even after putting much skin in the game, and after hiring executives from Paramount and Hulu to head up the effort... Vimeo has managed to make a rational decision. 
They got out before it was too late. The short-sighted conclusion might be that this is bad news for filmmakers who would have benefited from Vimeo's ability to pay them an even larger portion of their due. But if you take the long view, you can see that this is actually a positive outcome. Vimeo is simply trying to remain true to its core values, to empower creators. And if this is what the company had to do to keep its existing creators well-paid, then so be it. Amen to that. Now, speaking of companies that may not be treating its uh, creators so well, here's a story that is kind of a cautionary tale for all of all filmmakers. So Albert Mazels was a director and cinematographer who passed away in 2015, and during his lifetime, he and his brother David were the filmmaking pair behind some of the most influential documentaries of the last century, like Gimme Shelter and Grey Gardens. So it's not surprising that the last film he made, finished at age 88, by the way, would get a theatrical release and a New York Times critic's pick. What is surprising is that it's been two years since the film's festival run, and it's still being prevented from a wider release. And this is where that cautionary tale I mentioned comes in. So stepping back, the movie called In Transit premiered at Tribeca in 2015, where I saw it and really enjoyed it. It was co-directed by Lynn True, David Usui, Nelson Walker, and Ben Wu, and it fulfilled one of Maisel's lifelong ambitions of filming a verite movie on a cross-country train ride and just letting stories emerge from random passengers as they joined and left the trip. The film was originally financed by Al Jazeera America as a 50-minute doc for TV. Now, the team collected so much material that they ended up making a feature-length version, but in the meantime, you might remember that Al Jazeera America folded in 2016 and it took the rights to In Transit with it. So, the film was never broadcast or released because it was owned by Al Jazeera America. The Maisel's Documentary Center has been unsuccessfully trying to purchase rights to the film for over two years, and that's why it can only play in these very limited specialized theatrical screenings and isn't available anywhere else yet. So, filmmakers, take note. Make sure you're working out ownership and distribution rights with your financiers early and answering the question of what happens should their company fold. In the meantime, you can still see In Transit through July 6th here in New York at the Metrograph downtown or at the Maisel's Documentary Center in Harlem, and we'll hope that the team can get more screenings and get the film back very soon, and it'll be available to all of us. Do you know what Al Jazeera gains in keeping taking the rights to its grave? It feels very mysterious. Um, it's actually unlikely that. It's usually a case where no one knows where the rights remain. So, like, if Al Jazeera probably set up an independent company to be Al Jazeera America. They owned the rights. They took that company presumably through bankruptcy to avoid paying debts. So it's probably caught up in a bankruptcy court situation where Al Jazeera America probably went out of business owing someone money, as usually they do, and they're negotiating where the rights belong. So my suspicion is that they're showing it in New York under festival license. Like they're probably calling it a festival because they had that. But then broadcast license, like it could be in court because it's like the smallest part of a closing company proceedings. Who knows how long it could be until it's navigated. This is all a guess, but that's usually what happens when no one knows why the rights can't be found. Right. And it's in line with what I was saying, too. Like if you have a film, you know, you should – think ahead to this possibility because if the company folds even if which you know, happens all the time right, and even if even if what charles saying is saying is only an assumption and isn't fully accurate what we do know is that there's not enough of a staff or like an entity left at al jazeera america to even 
deal with all the remaining rights issues. So it's just going to be this kind of like nebulous mess probably for a long time. Yeah. And so you can try and work in stuff like reversion rights, like, oh, I'm selling the rights to this company as long as this company exists. But if the company goes over rights reverts, that kind of stuff can be discussed with your lawyer. That was very edifying. Thank you, Charles. Cool. And speaking about nebulous messes, <laughs> it's been almost a week now since Phil Lord and Chris Miller were fired from the set of Disney's upcoming Han Solo movie. And the fallout has been pretty messy. And this is messy in terms of details about the studio and the directing duo's creative conflicts, that is. Lucasfilm seemed to have no problem at all in convincing American Graffiti star turned accomplished director Ron Howard to step in and replace Lord Miller. Now, you can feel however you want about the change in directors. Maybe you agree with Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan in thinking Lord Miller were taking too many liberties with Kasdan's script, and the entries should stay true to the same tone of Star Wars, which we have seen now throughout eight feature films. Howard will certainly make sure that happens to the best of his ability. George Lucas reportedly had already reached out to him decades ago to direct one of the infamous prequels, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. It is also reported that Star, who has impossible boots to fill, Alden Ehrenreich, was also concerned in the type of slapstick, improvised humor the directing duo encouraged. But perhaps for him, this was just a reaction to the fact that Lucasfilm had hired an acting coach on set for him. The real problem here is that Lucasfilm keeps making a point of hiring these directors with indie sensibilities and very pointed styles only to keep interfering with their vision. Inevitably, it seems that the studio gets upset with the direction the film is going, that it's not true Star Wars material, before either firing the original directors or demanding insane amounts of reshoots. Just a year ago, The Hollywood Reporter did a Q&A with Kathleen Kennedy, where she discussed her belief that within major franchises, it is possible to take, quote, artistic license and creative risks. She added, quote, if all you're doing is playing it safe, trying to make the same movie over and over again, that's when the audiences say, oh, this is just a money-making machine. Amen to that. But if it's genuinely in service to the art form, then the franchise concept is being used in a way that's exciting. So, <laughs> you can't help but think she's being a little bit hypocritical here. <laughs> Why hire Lord Miller in the first place if you didn't want a fresh comedic entry into the franchise? Lord Miller reputedly said there were deep, fundamental, philosophical differences in filmmaking styles, and the directors felt they were being given zero creative freedom. They also felt that they were being asked to operate under extreme scheduling constraints and were never given enough days for each scene from the very beginning. We can remember a similar thing happening with Rogue One. Kennedy is said to have made attempts first to support and eventually to supplant Lord and Miller to some degree, as happened with Gareth Edwards on the Troubled Anthology film. In that case, screenwriter Tony Gilroy took on significant duties with the cooperation of Edwards. In this case, sources say, Kennedy attempted to cast Kazan in that role. Unsurprisingly, Lord and Miller were less accommodating than Edwards, who was a less established filmmaker. Quote, All of the films have been troubled, says an unnamed top executive at a rival studio. J.J. Abrams was powerful enough to push back on an unrealistic start date for the first movie, but that was a tug of war. The last one was reshot by Tony Gilroy for months, and now this? This is a systematic problem. Ryan Johnson of Brick and Looper shot Star Wars The Last Jedi, which is coming out this December, and it's said that his film has been going seamlessly, without major interferences from Lucasfilm. Let's hope so, because I'm excited to see what his vision can do to freshen up Star Wars in some way. Also, I mean, of everyone we listed, like I like Gareth Edwards and Lord and Miller are obviously really great, 
But like Ryan Johnson is like the real iconoclastic singular vision guy. So if he can make it through the process, that'll be really interesting. Yeah, that's what they say is that, well, this is proof that, you know, it's about the filmmaker and not really the whole, I guess, independent thing. But I don't know, man. I was really excited to see Lord Miller do a Han Solo movie. With Alden Ehrenreich, who's great. I can't believe they got him an acting coach. Yeah, well, it's hard. It's a really hard part to yeah, take, fair. you know. Yeah, but all the original trilogy were also troubled, right? The original Star Wars was the massive fight. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Kasdan is being trusted with this script and this tone. He wrote Return of the Jedi, and I think he also wrote Empire Strikes Back, but you'll have to I don't remember. back check me on them. that. Um, so, I mean, obviously, Star Wars, the franchise, has enormous faith in him. Um, and it's easier to put your faith in something that's been tried already than it is, uh, you know, to put something in a new direction. So you think maybe they'll bring George back for one of them? No. <laughs> no, George is gone. <laughs> a lot of cooks in that Alderanian kitchen. So moving on to gear news, you guys might remember a couple episodes ago we dedicated one of our major headlines to Hollywood's dark overlord and the big hacking scandal uh, that had happened and sort of how it, it provided a big warning sign for filmmakers and more news and sort of uh, details of that have emerged. So Charles went in depth this week and I want to ask him to start our gear section with some some uh, details about that. So leading news this week, Variety had a really in-depth story about Dark Overlord where the studio that got hacked, Larson Studios, went into detail about how the process happened, all of which ended in the release of episodes of Orange is the New Black before they aired on HBO. It's a super terrifying story. Larson was blackmailed. They paid the blackmail. Dark Overlord then tried to use these released episodes to get other people to pay blackmail, presumably HBO, who would also have an interest in not releasing the film. And then the episodes got leaked anyway, even though Larson paid the blackmail against the FBI's advice. Wow, I didn't know about the blackmail aspect. Yeah. Dark Overlord totally was like, pay us 50 bitcoins. Larson had to figure out how to pay in Bitcoin. Bitcoin exchanges won't sell you 50 at once. The FBI was like, we're not going to stop you, but don't do this. And then they tried to extort other people and then released it anyway. Haven't we all seen those kidnapping movies where like, they're like, we're going to kill your kid if you don't pay the ransom and then they kill the kid anyway? Yeah. I mean, this is like a film noir setup, right? Like it's like every single thing. You're like, don't trust the black man. It's like the big Lebowski kind of. And in fact, they did ask for a tow. Larson was like, we need to see that you actually have this footage. Um, I don't think they got a tow. I think they got like samples of Orange is the New Black. But even more frustrating, it all happened to Larson because they had a Windows 7 machine on their network. And uh, look, we, we all get in post. There's like some old piece of plug-in or software that you're keeping alive because you love that plug-in. So you need to keep a system. You know, like I know people are still running like Mac 10.6 because that's the thing that works with their Avid plugins. Pro Tools people are notorious about this. But the problem is, is if you don't update your machines, you leave them vulnerable to hacking. Dark Overlord wasn't even trying to hack them. They were just randomly searching the internet for people with this one version of Windows 7 they could exploit. It wasn't targeted. They just lucked into a studio with Orange is the New Black on their server. So, post houses, indie filmmakers, anybody working on anything sensitive, keep doing your updates. And if you have a legacy system, keep that legacy system off the network. 
Because um, literally, they went in through the Windows 7 system, copied everything off the server on Christmas, and then deleted everything on the server. So when they showed up on Christmas Day, because they'd gotten text messages from Dark Overlord, their server was wiped. And they found out that everybody had their source footage. So it was it was a big deal. Larson lost clients over it. Uh, as of course, like clients will freak out about this. Other clients stayed and worked with Larson to be above security, and it wasn't a total nightmare. But they paid the ransom and lost clients. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the day after we dug into Larson, uh, a massive ransomware spread around the world. Uh, it was based probably on last year's Petya ransomware, although um, Kapersky is calling it not Petya because. They don't think it's Petya. But the frustrating thing about it is some reports are indicating that it might have been a vulnerability that was exposed by doing a software update. Oh, no, you can't win. You can't win. This particular one hit Ukraine very hard, so there's a lot of suspicion that it was a targeted attack from Russian hackers who seem to be really good at this lately. Um be careful with your data, filmmakers. I know one post house that if they have sensitive like network materials, they keep that machine off the network. It's really hard because you got to like upload approval cuts and stuff. Um, that's probably not realistic, but man, it is. It's complicated being a filmmaker or a functioning democracy in the age of cyber hacking. In better news, Blackmagic has released a new camera control app for the Ursa Mini Pro that allows for Bluetooth control of your camera via an iPad app. Considering the catastrophes that can happen when you have the incorrect camera settings on a shoot, especially if you have like a multi-camera job, a big clear iPad that you can remotely use to check and change your camera settings is a huge plus and likely a sign that almost all cameras are going to go in the near future. Especially cool, Blackmagic have announced that they're going to open source the code for outside developers to create custom apps in the near future. So, for instance, if you're building, like, a multi-camera array for stereo or VR or you just need, like, live switching, um, the ability to, like, open source that control is really cool and it's awesome that Blackmagic are doing that. Our last bit of gear news this week is a new vintage-inspired portrait lens from Lens Baby, the Velvet 85. It goes all the way to a 1-2 to two macro magnification and is designed for sort shorter flange focal-length cameras. Uh, it's a macro that opens to 1.8 for under $500, so it's definitely something worth considering, and uh, it's an exciting addition to the Lens Baby Velvet line of lenses. Thanks so much, Charles. We are also going to ask you to help answer an Ask No Film School question this week. So Jason Contreras wrote to ask, hello, what's a good color grading software for Premiere Pro? Hello. Hello, hello Jason. Hello, Jason. That's a great question. So first off, the Adobe Suite has a color grading application, SpeedGrade, but nobody uses it, and it's not very popular, so let's just forget it right now. You're not going to find a lot of amazing tutorials online, and it doesn't feel super supported, so it's probably not worth learning, because who knows how long it's going to be part of the suite. The simplest solution for you is to use the built-in Lumetri toolset that is already a native part of Premiere. Adobe's put a lot of work into Lumetri. There's a lot of popular tutorials showing you how to use Lumetri online, and it's definitely something to look at. The frustration some people have with Lumetri is that the tool set's a little bit limited in terms of like fine grain control. So if you want a little more control and sophistication, there are a lot of places to explore. 
If you'd like to keep your project in Premiere, one thing to consider is the Red Giant Magic Bullet suite of plugins, which have like a pre-built cinematic looks panel, but also like a colorista panel for more precise control. And they have denoise if you got noisy footage and renoise if you've made your footage too plastic and clean and you want some texture back, all in one little package that work within Premiere. However, if you want to get more sophisticated, you can round trip your project with an XML from Premiere into the free DaVinci Resolve, which is the world's most common color correcting tool. Everyone uses it. It's free. It's everywhere. Round tripping with Premiere is really common. Uh, it might seem a bit intimidating to learn in first, but it's a pretty easy tool to learn to use, and there's tons of educational content out there available. And the round trip to Premiere is pretty painless if you follow the instructions and you check it against a clip. And uh, you'll have all the tools you could ever need to grade in Resolve. Uh, you could also upgrade to Resolve Studio for $2.99, and that adds some more export formats, and then most importantly, a lot of the noise correction tools. So if you're working with like low-light night footage, all that noise correction will all be there in Studio. And uh, that's what I would do to color grade in Premiere. Thanks, Charles, and good luck, Jason. And now moving on to some movies opening this week. First on VOD, on Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out Pi starting July 1st. This is Darren Aronofsky's first feature film, and it's certainly something to check out if you've never seen it before. Or if you have, it is definitely a movie with some serious rewatch value, as it's pretty hard to get what's going on after just one go through. Pi is about a paranoid mathematician who searches for a key number that will unlock the universal patterns found in nature. So yeah... It's a bit difficult, but a great one. The movie was shot in black and white on film for just $60,000, so it's also a pretty good uh, movie to watch if you're making a low-budget movie. Finally, now out on Netflix, is Okja. Bong Joon-ho's follow-up to Snowpiercer is a delightful Netflix original film about standing up to the man. And in this case, that man is corporate America, which wants to harvest a little girl's genetically modified pet pig for lunch meat. No! I know. You will cry. And you will think about becoming vegetarian. Okja stars Tilda Swinton as the corporate megalomaniac whose greenwashing is fooling no one, and Jake Gyllenhaal as her cartoonish spokesperson. It also stars On Si-hun as Mija, the little girl who loves her big, fat GMO pig. Interestingly, Bong went to all of the studios to try to finance Okja, but no one except Netflix would give him money. And when Netflix did give him money, they gave him total creative freedom. The only stipulation was that he not shoot on film and shoot on digital instead because of the 4K streaming situation, which Darius Kanji, the cinematographer, who, by the way, also shot Seven and Amore, told me recently when I spoke to him. He also told me that the Alexa 65 was the only digital camera he's ever interested in working with. He shot the film on that. He also shot Amore on that. And more on that later in our Words of Wisdom section. I also interviewed Bong himself and Eric DeBoer, the film's VFX supervisor, about creating the immensely expressive creature that is Okja, based on facial expressions of dogs and muscle movements of hippopotamuses. And coming to HBO July 1st is Loving. It's an indie darling that was huge on the festival circuit last year. It's the true story in narrative form of Richard and Mildred Loving, a couple whose arrest for interracial marriage in 1960s Virginia began a legal battle that would end with the Supreme Court's historic 1967 decision allowing interracial marriage. 
So the movie was directed by Jeff Nichols, who also directed some great movies in Shotgun Stories, Take Shelter, Mud, and Midnight Special. He's like the hardest working indie director in Hollywood right now. Um, Ruth Nega earned an Oscar nomination this year for her performance as Mildred Loving, and the film also stars Hollywood's other busiest guy, Joel Edgerton, who we interviewed about his collaborations with Nichols at South by Southwest last year. And coming to theaters this week, finally, you can see Baby Driver, which is out now. It came out yesterday, which is kind of weird for a movie to come out on a Wednesday. But hey, I, by the time you are listening to this podcast, will have seen it. I've been waiting to see this movie forever. I believe it was on my most anticipated list for when we went to South by Southwest, where it premiered earlier this year to a rave reviews. Emily, am I right about that? Oh, you were absolutely positively right about that. Thank you. I tried to get an interview with Edgar Wright. I couldn't. I tried to even get tickets, and I couldn't. So this dude is one of my favorite directors. As Charles and I were discussing earlier, he has not made a bad movie ever. Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and Scott Pilgrim were all, in my teenage opinion and now adult opinion, absolute masterpieces. Baby Driver is about a young getaway driver who, after being coerced into working for a crime boss, finds himself taking part in a heist doomed to fail. I think it's currently sitting at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, and people are saying it boasts some of the best car chase scenes ever filmed, as well as saying it's Edgar Wright's best movie, which is a pretty great feat. I mean, The World's End is like one of the top 10 movies the last 20 years for me. If it's better than that, I will be flabbergasted. I also can't wait. Thank you, Edgar Wright. Who liked John's tweet just earlier? Thank you for liking my tweet, Edgar Wright, about me going to see your movie. Edgar Wright. Tonight. Edgar Wright. Also coming to theaters tomorrow is Sofia Coppola's steamy southern pot boiler, The Beguiled. Every minute of it sizzles with war, sex, and death. <laughs> Returning to the gauzy teenage fever dream of The Virgin Suicides, one of my favorite films, Coppola packs the beguiled with sexual tension, baked in the wispy haze of a small world cordoned off from the anguish of the Civil War. Nicole Kidman, Elle Fanning, and Kirsten Dunst stars three women whose lives on the estate of a Southern girls' school are upended by the appearance of a Union soldier, played by Colin Farrell. <laughs> that is what it sounds like when he enters the screen. As each woman vies for his affection, sex and death become nearly indistinguishable, and a war of its own boils over within the school's mossy walls. I spoke to the art director, Jennifer Dagan, who told me, quote, When I read the script, I always pictured the visuals like you're trying to take a deep breath and your corset is way too tight. The strings are just wrapped around you and you can't breathe. You're struggling for air. We tried to translate that in the art direction. You can read our full interview on nofilmschool.com. Before we move on, how crazy is it that there's two good movies to see in theaters in June? It's actually excellent. It's amazing. Yeah, there's some good shit coming out. In the summertime. Praise be. I think we talked about that earlier, though, this year. We were like, there's some shitty blockbusters coming out and some good indies coming out. So, cool trend. Mm-hmm. World. Keep it up. So for some upcoming grant deadlines, we've mentioned these before, and this is your last, last chance. The extended deadline is July 12th for the upcoming Points North opportunities. We love these guys. They're good friends. So the first one is the Points North Fellowship. 
organized by the Camden International Film Festival. And this allows for five documentary filmmakers to receive two all-access passes to the fest, four nights of accommodations, and a stipend to subsidize their travel to Camden for the Points North Pitch and Industry Mentorship which will help launch their doc project. So, yeah, so if you're a documentary filmmaker, this is an opportunity to develop your feature-length work in progress. Points North is also offering a short-form editing residency with that same deadline of July 12th, final deadline. If you could use some time to work on your next doc short film, Points North offers this opportunity for seven nights of accommodations on the picturesque coast of Maine, a $1,000 travel stipend with a rental car, And again, two passes to the Camden International Film Festival and Points North Forum. The short form editing residency takes place September 10th through the 17th and provides a focused creative space for independent nonfiction filmmakers and multimedia journalists to work on your short films or episodic docs with guidance from experienced mentors. And speaking of the Camden International Film Festival, their final deadline for submissions of films is June 30th. So that's this week. In addition to hosting the opportunities for fellowships and residencies that we just mentioned, SIF is known as one of the top doc film festivals in the world. It showcases over 80 documentary feature and short films from around the globe, and it also takes place in picturesque Camden, Maine from September 14th to the 17th. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival and one of the nicest, loveliest festival experiences you could possibly have in the U.S. The Smalls Festival has a deadline on July 3rd, This festival takes place in London, England from September 1st through the 6th. This week-long short film festival has prizes that include a Panavision 40,000-pound film package, a 4,000-pound prize in cash, and a Panelux film package as well. Categories include animation, bite-size, comedy, dimensions of diversity, documentary, drama, music video, and student film. And the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival has a deadline on July 3rd. This is their late deadline. It takes place October 18th through the 22nd in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it's the largest film festival in the state. It's been named in Movie Maker Magazine's 50 festivals worth the entry fee in 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2017. Four years running. Hey, Emily, did you talk to anybody interesting and learn anything new this week? (laughs) Yeah, actually, thank you for asking. Um, I've been looking for an opportunity to talk about my conversation with Hal Hartley, which I published last week while I was on vacation. Um, So I'm going to talk about it this week. He's one of the OG indie film pioneers, which is a double positive, I know. Um, And he dropped a major truth bomb in our interview, that the dream of the 90s is dead. Or, in his words, the original indie film business does not exist anymore. John, do you want to read uh, the voice of Hal Hartley? You can call me Hal Hartley. Yeah. You can call me the voice of Hal Hartley. (laughs) From the beginning of cinema, models of production and distribution have changed almost every 10 years. I mean, filmmakers thought the end of the world was happening when sound was invented because there had been this whole silent movie thing, which made a lot of people millionaires and certainly famous. And then sound came along, and this whole silent thing just fell off the edge of the earth. I remember in my youth, when VHS tape and home video became a reality, everybody thought, oh my god, movies are finished. But it didn't really happen. Things change. The internet and computers changed everything. As I continue to make work, I'm just trying to adjust my creative and business aims to this technological reality that keeps changing. And one of the ways he's embraced the new reality is that he actually makes work for the small screen now. He knows that most people will be watching his films on a small screen, so he makes close-ups more prominent, and it helps him sort of emphasize his dialogue and character-driven work. 
Also, he took to Kickstarter to raise nearly $400,000 from thousands of dedicated fans to make Ned Rifle, which was the final installment of his Grimm trilogy, which, by the way, is one of the only cinematic universes in the realm of indie film. I found his words so refreshing. I mean, when I was in high school, I used to come visit New York and go see his films at the Angelica, and it was so influential in my filmmaking career. And it would be such a shame if he became bitter and jaded and was just like, it's not the same, so fuck this. Instead, he's like, it's not the same, let's embrace it and move on. My contribution this week is more of a resource than a specific word of wisdom. I've done two stories in the past couple weeks about sci-fi director Neil Blomkamp's experimental indie studio, Oats, which released a short last week called Raka, featuring Sigourney Weaver, and another one yesterday called Firebase. These are very VFX-heavy films done on a mean and lean budget, and I had a great conversation with their main VFX guy, Chris Harvey, who came to the indie shop off of major studio pictures. For example, he was VFX supervisor for Tron Legacy and one of Charles's favorites, Fast and Furious 6, and like a bunch of others. So Harvey told me that Oates is not only trying to be innovative in their approach to the work, like doing big productions on small budgets, but also in how the work is distributed. So both the shorts I mentioned are available free, but if you choose to pay a mere $4.99, you get all this extra downloadable content that he said you never would have access to otherwise, particularly in terms of VFX, kind of how the sausage is made stuff. So, for example, he said that there's three main characters that you see in Firebase, and all of those will be released as full assets, not just the model, but the animation rigs and all of the textures that studios would normally pay tens of thousands of dollars for, and for only $4.99, you can download them and start playing with them yourself. So it seems like it's going to be a really great resource. And the podcast that we put out on Monday was actually way more insightful than I even remembered it being when I recorded it at TIFF almost a year ago. You so blew yourself away. I blew myself. If you haven't listen to it yet, you should definitely check it out. It's called How Starting a Production Company Can Help You Make Your First Film. I interviewed director Ashley McKenzie, who wears so many hats, her hat rack is about to fall over, she is a hat rack. And she said something that really rang true with me for a hat rack. First of all, <laughs> she was full of quotes. And you know how we ask pretty much everyone what their best advice is at the end of our interview episodes? Well, she gave a great response in quoting Robert Brisson, who advised, quote, make visible what without you might have never been seen. This really means uncover the stories that only you can uncover, something personal that represents something specific. So to sort of expand upon that, Mackenzie added on, if you really go specific, there's a universality that will really emerge from that. I think that's so true and something that every filmmaker should keep in mind when thinking about starting a project. Uh, my words this week came from Brent Barber, founder of the Bicycle Film Festival. Uh, in his interview, he said, maintain those friendships. Stay close to the people who share your passion. When you meet someone you think you might bond with, go have dinner with them. And it's funny, it's really simple advice, but whenever people talk about networking, it's so revolting. Like you always picture like a holiday in convention room and everyone's like, hey, what do you do? What do you do? And here's your, and it's like gross. <laughs> but it's like, it's this simple thing of like networking is just finding folks you get along with and keeping in touch with them. You don't have to pretend to be anybody else. If you're really into bikes, I guarantee you, you will find other people really into bikes. A bicycle film festival is a great place to do that. And uh, and then, you know, keep in touch. It's really easy to just drift off. And, like, it's really easy to get turned off by the idea of networking because I think everyone assumes that means pretending to be someone you're not. But just, like, be yourself. 
find the other people passionate about what you are. Make some friends. Yeah, and keep in touch with those people. Thank you, everyone, for sharing those really great weekly words of wisdom this week. So finally, a shout out. If you are in the U.S., the 30th season of POV began this past Monday on PBS, and new episodes air each week through the fall. The films will also be streaming on POV.org. This is one of broadcast TV's most important outlets for independent documentaries, and some of the best films we saw and wrote about at festivals last year are playing, like Kristen Johnson's Camera Person and Obeda's iTunes' The War Show. Finally, I will not be on the show next week because I will be off celebrating my birthday. But lucky for you, you'll get to hear my melodious voice on Monday for not one but two of the most interesting conversations I had at TIFF last year combined into one great interview podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be speaking with a Palestinian filmmaker, Maizalun Hamoud, about her narrative film In Between and an Israeli filmmaker, Maya Zinstein, about her documentary Forever Pure. I think you'll find their different approaches to telling stories about the realities of life in their shared region as fascinating as I did. Meanwhile, we're so glad you all joined us. You can get links to all the articles that we spoke about on the show at this week's podcast post and lots, lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Stay in touch. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim John Jim. Like his tweets and he'll mention you on the podcast. And I am at Charles Hayne. If you're at great. <laughs> or, you know, Brian Johnson, you can hit me up too. Uh, Gizzard Lizard. King Gizzard and the Lizard Lizard, if you want to. It's Edgar Wright's favorite band. You should you should all also follow him on Twitter. And thank you all <laughs> for weighing in on the great Jim John Jim, Jim controversy. It looks like uh, we went out there. So thank you, Twitterverse. Yeah. I think it was three votes to, to zero <laughs> votes. So that's a that is a that's quite a landslide. Three hundred percent increase. Them's Putin vote levels. <laughs> wow! Thanks, everybody. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>